try not to look uh, too awkward when, you know, at the end of the service, a couple families walk in and uh, start looking around and start wondering, why is everyone already seated and why does it seem like the service is wrapping up? That sometimes, not always, but sometimes happens on this day. I'll also say this, this is a Sunday, and I'll try not to take this personal if it happens today, but this tends to be a Sunday, and I've got, so I've been pastoring now for 20 years, this makes it year 20, um, and I've noticed that on uh, the Sunday when we change the clocks, I notice way more yawns than normal. And when I was in high school, I had a, a science teacher in ninth grade um, who, whenever we would yawn in his class, he got really defensive about it, and he'd make us stand up and do jumping jacks. So I don't know if that's going to be policy that we implement. It's not technically church policy, but you know, if you need to stand up and do jumping jacks to make up for the extra hour of sleep that we lost. Uh, it's, it's interesting. We've been going through the book of Jeremiah. And as we've been going through the book of Jeremiah over the past couple months, you've probably seen that there's a lot of things here in the book of Jeremiah, we're going to talk about this in just a moment, um, that obviously are, are weighty things, they're heavy things. Um, they're, uh, when Jeremiah was going through the course of his ministry of, of uh, uh, preaching and serving as a prophet, he oftentimes was very confrontational. And last week, we looked at a portion of Scripture that includes some very encouraging words when we were in chapter 29. Today, we're jumping ahead to Jeremiah chapter 31. And if I had thought about it, maybe I would have scheduled um, our, our, uh, our, our preaching schedule slightly different because Jeremiah 31 is the chapter of the book of Jeremiah that I've been most excited to get to and preach about. And it dawned on me this week, I was like, oh, wait a second, this is Daylight Savings Sunday. And inevitably, this interruption to the routine really goofs things up on Sunday morning. But thankfully, um, you know, we record the message. So if anyone dozes off or if anyone isn't here today that normally would be here today, um, I, ho- I hope they'll check it out because this is a consequential portion of Scripture. In fact, when you look at Jeremiah chapter 31, you can almost look at the whole Bible as a pivot on this chapter. And I'll show you what I mean by that in just a second. And I know that a lot of people have Jeremiah <clears throat> chapter 29, verse 11 committed to memory. But today I want to point out to you a very easy verse to remember, particularly in, in regard to where to find it in the Bible. It's Jeremiah 31, verse 31. So that's where we're going to start in just a moment. Jeremiah 31, 31. So have that and just kind of file it away in your mind because a very consequential thing is spoken of as we open up and take a look at this portion of Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 31. Looks like I might need to have you guys in the back work this for me. Uh, I'll try it and see if it works. But what you'll see here is that this forces us to ask the question, has our sin been forgiven and our fellowship with God restored? And this portion of Scripture illustrates that concept to us by speaking of the new covenant. So this morning, again, we're in Jeremiah 31, and we're picking up with verse 31, and I'm going to read down to verse 40. But this is what it says in this passage. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever." Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege to be able to start off our week together in this context, worshiping you glorifying your name, singing songs of praise to you, praying before you, spending time in fellowship with one another. And Lord, as we look at this portion of your word, we pray that you'd help us to understand the significance of the things that you've communicated in this portion of scripture. Lord, we recognize that these were things that as Jeremiah was communicating them to the people, I'm certain that the people in his initial hearing did not grasp everything that Jeremiah was trying to communicate. And sometimes, Lord, it can be very easy for us in the midst of going through a book like the book of Jeremiah to just glance right over the verses and the chapters that, uh, particularly this chapter, Lord, it could be very easy for us to just walk right past it and not necessarily realize the significance of what you were communicating through him to us in this portion of your word. So, Lord, we pray that you give us your insight and your guidance as we take a look at it, and we pray that we would understand it in its fullness and be encouraged by it today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever made a promise to God? You ever do that? You ever make promises to Him? Uh, I have done that at different times in my life, and, and you don't have to answer this question out loud, but certainly answer it in your mind. Did you keep the promise? I think a lot of times we make promises to God, and um, we're not always quite as skilled at keeping them. Now, what I'm about to share with you is not necessarily a, uh, a pleasant story, but it's something that sticks out in my mind. There's actually an element to it that I think is kind of gross, um, but I'll share it anyway. So um, I remember when I was 12 years old, it's the first time I can distinctly remember making a promise to God. And I was hanging out with two of my friends. They were both about a couple years older than me. And so when I, a lot of times during that, that season of my life, I was always hanging out with kids who were, that were just a few years older than me, like two or three years. And so it was all I could do to try and fit in with them. And I wanted to be considered older as well. 
And uh, one of my friends, we were sitting down, we were actually sitting in his dad's car. And it was a summer evening, we're just sitting in his dad's car in the driveway. And he takes out uh, a tin of, of uh, effect, like chewing tobacco, right? He took it out and he said, you ever try this? And I said, no. <laughs> and uh, the, I guess the other guy in the car hadn't tried it either. And he said, well, do you guys want to try it? And truthfully, I did not want to try it but I also didn't want to be the only guy that didn't try it. So this is how peer pressure works, I guess, when you're younger. And, uh, and so he's like, oh, no, you guys should try it. He's like, I love this stuff. And he, so he told us what to do with it, where to put it in our mouth, how to hold it there. And again, I know you didn't come here today for a lesson on how to chew tobacco. Um, so that's not what the point of this is. But I will tell you this, and you probably already know it. If you've ever seen a Western um, you, you, you spit it out, right? Like you, you, the whole time you got it in your mouth, they're always spitting, right? It, it's not pleasant. So this is what he suggested that we do. He said, listen, we're in my dad's car. I recommend that you not spit. And it's like, so what do we do? He's like, just, just swallow the juices it generates. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and so we sat in the car there, and I've got this in my mouth, and I've never tried something like this before. And uh, I'm swallowing it, and I'm like, I'm starting to feel dizzy, and, uh, and I started to feel really, really sick to my stomach, and uh, my head started pounding, and it honestly felt like I had the flu. It felt like instantly like the, like the worst case of the flu came upon me, and I was like, oh, this is terrible. Like, this is absolutely the worst decision I have ever made, and we got out of the car, and I remember trying to walk. And I, I was like, oh, I feel like garbage. And I, I, you know, when we were out of the car, I spit it out of my mouth. And I remember having to walk up two flights of steps. And I was walking up these flights of steps to come back into the house. And I felt queasy. And I made a promise to God in that moment. <laughs> I was like, Lord, if you can make me feel normal again, if you can make me not feel so sick, I promise that I will never touch tobacco ever again. We'll never touch this stuff ever again. And within an hour, I started to feel normal again, but I was like, oh, I'm glad that subsided. I felt like garbage. And unfortunately, I broke that promise. That was early on in what ended up being, I was kind of rather young to get hooked on that stuff, but it was like a two-year addiction to, uh, you know, to various forms of tobacco. It took me a long time to, to, to break it comparatively to how old I was. And so, you know, I made this promise to God, Lord, if you make me feel better, if you can somehow make my head stop spinning and make my stomach stop feeling so upset, I won't even touch this stuff. I won't go near it, except for the million times that I do over the next few years until I finally break my newest habit. So, you know, I made promises to God and I broke them. And when you look through the scriptures, we find various covenants we find various agreements that the Lord made with His people. And interestingly, the Lord always kept His end of those agreements, but His people have a tendency, consistently, of breaking their side of the agreement, their side of the pledge, their side of the promise. But one of the covenants that God has initiated, specifically as Jeremiah references it here, the new covenant, this particular covenant, has, it offers us the opportunity to have our sins permanently forgiven and to have our fellowship with God completely restored forever. And so in this portion of Scripture, Jeremiah speaks of this new covenant. Now, let's see. 
All right, so this isn't still behaving, so you're, you're on call in the back here. My clicker doesn't want to cooperate today. Nope, nope, it's just done. It's done. All right. One of the things that we're looking at here, and one of the questions that I think is worth asking as we look at this portion of Scripture is this. Why is the new covenant different from the old? What's, so, like, what was, you know, what's the deal with the old one? Why does there have to be a new one? Well, let me reread the first two verses. This is what it says. In verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So, so we've been working through the book of Jeremiah. There have been quite a few challenging chapters that we've come across as we've been studying this. We've watched as the Lord's directly confronted the people of Judah over their sin. He's warned them of impending captivity. He's disciplined them with the goal of stripping away their affinity for a variety of idols. And now you have the Lord revealing through Jeremiah something that the people of Judah and ultimately all people could find great joy in. And he reveals to Jeremiah that there was going to come a time when a new covenant would be made between God and His people. Now, when you look through the, the Scriptures, you can see multiple examples of the Lord initiating covenants. This is actually a pattern that takes place all throughout the Bible. And a covenant, when it's initiated, it's, it's initiated or sealed with blood in some form. So when you look back to when God made a covenant with Abraham, and you can see an example of this in Genesis 15. You don't have to turn there, but you can just note that and look later. You see that that covenant was initiated or sealed with blood. Likewise, when you look at the covenant that the Lord made with Moses, you see when uh, the book of Hebrews in chapter 9 describes that covenant, it talks about how blood was used to initiate or to seal that covenant. Likewise, here, this new covenant that Jeremiah is speaking about as the Lord gives him the words to speak here, would all, this covenant would also require the shedding of blood. There was going to have to be the shedding of blood to initiate or seal this covenant as well. Specifically, it would be the blood of Jesus Christ that would seal this covenant. Let me show you a familiar scripture that speaks to this. And you've heard it before but maybe never thought of it in conjunction with Jeremiah 31. This is from Luke 22. And in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, it says this, And he took bread, so this is Jesus at the, at the Last Supper, right? And he says, it says this, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So we've heard that scripture before. And I imagine that, you know, a lot of times we hear this and maybe we think about it a little bit, but this is what Jeremiah was referencing here in Jeremiah chapter 31. The very things that Jesus said he was inaugurating or initiating or sealing with the shedding of his blood. Now, when you look here in Jeremiah uh, chapter 31 here, in, in, you know, as he's in the process here of revealing the promise of a new covenant that was going to be inaugurated at a future date, you have the Lord revealing to Jeremiah that it was going to be different from the old covenant. It was going to be different. It wasn't going to be like the old covenant. It was going to be different. It was going to be unique. 
Jeremiah was told that it wouldn't be like the covenant that God had made with Moses. It wouldn't be like the covenant that God had made with the people of Israel when they were being led out of Egypt, when they were being rescued from Egypt. They broke that covenant. They broke that. But he makes a point to illustrate here that that covenant, or that this covenant, the new covenant, would not be broken. And we'll see that as we look at this portion of Scripture. Under the Old Covenant, so when you think back to the Old Testament law, when you're reading through uh, the early books of the New Testament, you read the details and all the things that are included there, under the Old Covenant, strict adherence to the Mosaic Law was required. And another thing that was required was uh, there were daily animal sacrifices that took place under the Old Covenant. So strict adherence to the law, and if you broke any part of the law, you were guilty of breaking the entire thing. And there also had to be these strict daily animal sacrifices. And when you look through the Old Covenant, there's a lot of details there. And I will confess to you that there are many times when I've been reading through the Old Testament that uh, I, I look at it and I'm like, I'm glad I didn't live then. I'm glad I live now. And I, I've even thought of it in regard to like the, the role that the religious officials had uh, during that time. I'm really glad that I don't have to cut up any meat today. Like, you know, like no animals, I don't have to cut up anything. I'm really glad I don't have to inspect anyone's houses for mold. You know, under the Old Covenant, you have priests that were required to do different things like that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the role of a New Testament pastor is very different than what life was like for an Old Testament priest. But under the Old Covenant, you know, you had strict adherence to the Mosaic Law. You have strict uh, regulations regarding daily animal sacrifices. And again, there is nothing wrong with the Old Covenant. There is nothing wrong with the Old Testament law, right? There's nothing wrong with it. But what happens is, as people try and implement it, as they try and utilize it, as they try and follow its, its requirements, not breaking them, right? As they try to not break the requirements of the Old Testament law, they quickly begin to realize that our sinfulness, our innate sinfulness, it prevents us from being able to keep it perfectly. And if you can't keep it perfectly, the Scripture reveals to us that at that point, we are then guilty of breaking the whole thing. Doesn't that sound like an impossible situation? Here you have a law that must be kept perfectly, and you can't do it. So effectively, instead of taking care of our problem with sin, the Old Covenant, what it did was it made it abundantly clear to us just how sinful we were. It's like a magnifying glass on our sin. It showed us just how sinful we were. And it also showed us just how much we needed God to step in and rescue us. We needed God to step in and save us because we obviously did not have the strength, power, or capacity to do that ourselves. And that's exactly what the Lord wanted the Old Covenant to accomplish for us. He wanted us to be able to see that we are not Him. He wanted us to be able to see that we, at our core, wrestle with sin. We wrestle with rebellion against Him. We cannot keep His requirements perfectly. And so in the fullness of time, when it was abundantly established that it was impossible for us in our natural strength to keep the requirements of the Old Testament law, God interrupted human history, or He interjected Himself into human history in a very unique way. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh and walked among us. And He never sinned. And he fully kept the requirements of the Old Testament law perfectly for us. And then he went to the cross, having never sinned. And he shed his blood, 
as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So no more animal sacrifices would be required because the ultimate sacrifice had been made and the new covenant was now initiated. The new covenant was now inaugurated and it was sealed in the blood of Christ. Flip to the next slide. I want to show us something from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. It says, therefore, so this is speaking of Jesus Christ, and it says, therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. So you're going to notice this phrase, new covenant, all throughout the scriptures now as we look at this, uh, this chapter, Jeremiah 31. But it's everywhere, right? It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Christ inaugurated the new covenant by the shedding of His blood. And that's something He was actually trying to illustrate to, uh, the, to His disciples as they were gathered around Him at the Last Supper. He said, you know, effectively, He's saying these things, and I imagine as they're there in, in this context hearing Him say these things, They're like nodding their head, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. But I don't imagine that they fully got it just yet. I imagine it was over time as the Holy Spirit really allowed this information to settle into their minds that they began to realize, this is what Jesus was talking about. This new covenant that Jeremiah had prophesied was one day going to be inaugurated. Jesus is saying that His blood would be shed to seal that new covenant. And it's different from the old covenant. Now, Jeremiah 31 continues to develop this thought. And let's jump to the next slide here um, and ask the question, what's the Lord intentionally writing on our hearts? Because this covenant tells us that the Lord's doing something. He's writing something on our hearts. Well, what's He writing? Look at verse 33 and 34. It says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's a beautiful portion of Scripture, isn't it? It's the type of thing that if you want to be encouraged, you just, you know, it, it's useful to sit down and read a portion of Scripture like this. But here you have the Lord talking about this, the, this information He's about to write on the hearts of His people. Now, I remember when I was uh, a, a brand new pastor, so that, this was in 98, 1998, and um, I remember when I was setting up office hours, I, it kind of dawned on me, no, no one had told me how to do this. You know, no one had told me, like, the best way to set up office hours or set up a schedule. And I was like, huh. And so I asked a pastor uh, that I knew that had been in ministry for a long time, I said, how do you structure your week? And he gave me an opinion, and it was a good opinion. I was like, okay, that's good. And I talked to other guys. I was like, how do you structure your week so that you get everything done and nothing gets missed? And it's like everyone I talked to had a different opinion. And I was like, everybody has a different opinion about how best to do this. And so somewhere along the line, I was like, I have to settle in on what works best for me. And so I settled in on, on kind of like a strategy that, that I think is useful. And I actually have it posted to the left of my desk. So if you went into my office, you would notice I have this actually taped to the wall. And on the wall to the left of my desk, 
I have the church calendar for the year. So everything just kind of on a piece of paper, what's coming up so I can look at it and always be kind of mindful about what's coming up. And then I have each day of the week broken down and the, you know, I don't have all the minutia, all the little details written down. I just have the major benchmarks that I need to have done before I leave here on that day. It's like this day you must have this, this, and this thing done before you leave. Don't leave until you have these three things done. You know, and then the next day, the same thing. And so I just have that list taped there. Then I have a few other notes and checklists that I have there. And I find those things um, useful. You know, it's something that I'm happy if I keep to the list because it keeps me on track. And I'm upset with myself if I get behind or if something interrupts that and I end up breaking that routine. But I try not to break it. I try and keep it there. And I like having the visual reminder right there to the left of my desk. Now, to the right of my desk, I have a bowl of mini candy bars with almonds. That has no significance other than I really enjoy candy bars with almonds. Um, But I I like looking at that list. I like seeing it. I like having that checklist. It keeps me on track, and it makes me feel like at the end of the day, it's like, all right, you got done today what needed to get done today on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, on a Thursday, etc. When you look at this portion of Scripture, it reminds us regarding the Old Testament law, regarding the Old Covenant, that when the Lord communicated His law to the people of Israel under the Old Covenant, He inscribed the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And you're familiar with those portions of Scripture, I'm sure, from the book of Exodus, as the Lord inscribes the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, and they're given to Moses, and they were a visible list, a visible reminder that you could look at and be reminded of God's moral law. You could see it. It's a checklist. You could follow it. You could watch it. In fact, lately our family, uh, we spend time, before we watch TV together in the evenings, uh, we like to just take a few moments, it's usually just five or six minutes, uh, for just a brief time of family devotions. And one of the things that we've been incorporating into that is just reviewing the Ten Commandments. In addition to what we've been normally looking at, we've just kind of added that in there to see, make sure everybody's got those things in mind, in order in their head, and we discuss their implications and things like that. And they were given to Moses, they were inscribed by the hand of God, on tablets of stone. And here you look at the the new covenant and how the Lord's writing this down and how he's penning it down. And you see a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant and how he's, he's writing it or communicating it because the new covenant is not written on tablets of stone like the old covenant was. That's what it says here in Jeremiah 31. It's not written on tablets of stone. When we trust in Jesus Christ, when we receive his gift of salvation and our sin is forgiven, The Scripture reveals to us that He writes His law on our hearts. So not on these hard tablets of stone, but on hearts that He's intentionally made soft. You see a contrast between the old and the new. He writes His law on our hearts. As people who live under the new covenant, the Scripture tells us that we have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, He's not just operating around us, He's also living within us. And that's very different from what the experience was like for people living under the Old Covenant. The Holy Spirit did not indwell everybody during the period of the Old Covenant. He would sometimes indwell certain people for certain tasks, but not everybody. But under the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. And Scripture says that the Lord has written His heart, or written His law on our hearts as part of the New Covenant. He's pointing our hearts toward the truth through the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to us. He invites us to pray. He gives us the right words to say to others. He leads us where He wants us to go. He helps us to discern truth from error. He keeps us sensitive 
to the heart of God. He's doing all of these things internally within those who trust in Him. And likewise, we've been given assurance that through faith in Jesus Christ, who is, again, the mediator of the new covenant, that our sin has been completely forgiven. Right? That's what the Lord revealed to Jeremiah in these verses that we just read, that through faith in Jesus Christ, our sin is completely forgiven. And it's not going to be held against us because it was held against Him. The Lord assures us that under this new covenant, He will remember our sin against us no more. Well, the Scripture goes on. It develops these multiple thoughts. Another question that this portion of Scripture invites us to ask is this. Can God's promises... So let me have you jump to the next slide there for me. Yeah, can God's promises to His people be sabotaged? Look at what it says in verse 35 down to verse 37. It says this. Thus says the Lord, and this is like poetic and figurative language that the Lord's using here through Jeremiah to illustrate this idea, but it says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, and the implication here, by the way, is what? This fixed order is not going to depart from him. So he's saying, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Then he illustrates it another way. He says, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So what's he saying here? He's saying these are things that are not going to happen because you can't measure the expanse of the universe, right? You can't stop the fixed order of things that I have initiated. And here we're asking the, asking the question, can God's promises to His people be sabotaged? And you have the Lord giving us that kind of answer. Now, when you hear the word sabotage, I don't know what kind of word or what kind of images come to your mind, but to sabotage something means to take something and deliberately destroy it. So if you're going to sabotage something, that means you're trying to deliberately destroy whatever that thing is that you're trying to sabotage. It's actually a term that's most often used in either a military sense or a political sense. And actually, if you took the time to look up sabotage online or examples of sabotage, you'd find that in our day and age, many of the modern examples of sabotage actually have to do with like forms of cyber warfare, where you have people intentionally trying to sabotage the computer systems of a nation or of people. And that's a form of sabotage that we deal with on a very common level right now. In fact, just this week, I got, and I still save the message on my phone, I got one of those robocalls, and I was like, what is this? And I get these things all the time, but this one was a little bit different. And uh, I just let it go to the voicemail, and then I listened to the voicemail, and it was this computerized voice saying, this is so-and-so from Microsoft. We need you to give us access to your computer, otherwise you're going to lose all access to your Microsoft-related products. And I was like, ah, joke's on you, I don't use any Microsoft-related products. Um, But at the same time, I was like, I've heard of these things before, and maybe you have as well, where you get those calls and people that maybe aren't terribly computer savvy think, oh no, I don't want my computer to stop working. I got a call from Microsoft's tech department. I need to give them access to my computer. And then what they do is they hold all your information and they blackmail you until you pay them money and then they release your information back to you, right? That's how those schemes work. It's a form of sabotage, but they didn't get me. 
Not this time, anyway. I hope they never get me. And when you look at this portion of Scripture, it tells us that God's plans cannot be sabotaged. His plans can't be wrecked. His plans can't be ruined. He plans for His people to be a nation before Him for all time. He does not plan to cast off His people forever. That's what He's made clear in this portion of Scripture. Even though there are many examples of His people rebelling against Him, it is not His plan to cast them off forever. Rather, His plan is to offer rescue and redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, under this new covenant. God kept His word in regard to the old covenant. But His people broke the agreement. The new covenant, however, will never be broken. It will never be sabotaged. Even though Satan tries to do his best to thwart people from accepting the truth of the gospel, and he does his best to try and hinder people from being able to see the light of Christ, God's plan to build a family and to draw those that he has built into a family close to himself is not going to be stopped. And you can see in the scriptures he begins with the people of Israel in Judah. And then he unites, he ta- then he begins working with the Gentile nations and unites them together in this one body called the church. And the Lord's will, the Lord's plan is not going to be stopped. It's not going to be sabotaged. It's, the new covenant is not going to be broken. There's one other thing that I want to point out to us from this portion of scripture today by way of uh, you know, just asking the question related to what it says here, and that's this. Will the reign of Christ ever be overthrown? Well, look at what it says in verses 38 and 40, as this section that we're looking at here today finishes up. It says this in verse 38. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. So it's speaking of the city of Jerusalem. It says, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Now, at the time that this portion of Scripture was being written down, you know, during the generation in which Jeremiah lived, and he's observing all these things taking place, the city of Jerusalem was in calamity. It was a very difficult time to try and live in the city of Jerusalem, and it was very disheartening for the people that lived there to see what was taking place in their city. The city was suffering from ungodly leadership, It was suffering from internal idolatry. That was part of the culture of the time. It was also experiencing destruction from the nation of Babylon. All of these things were taking place during this time. And yet, even still, no earthly force has the power to ultimately thwart God's plans for humanity or for creation or even for the city of Jerusalem. Because here you have Jeremiah revealing that the Lord still had plans for a city that in the midst of that time... So right now, the city of Jerusalem looks beautiful, but at the time these things were being written, it would, be, it would almost seem too good to be true, to be looking at what Jeremiah was saying here, as he's speaking of a restored and expanded city of Jerusalem. The city was in, in very, very bad shape and looked like it was going to be decimated forever. Now, prophetically, when you look at this passage, we're told that the borders of Jerusalem would be expanded. 
So it's talking about that area being expanded and that the city would be rebuilt for the Lord. Not just for people, but for the Lord, it tells us here. And that a day would come, when you look at these verses here, where it says you know, that the city would not be plucked up or overthrown ever again. That that would never happen. Isn't it interesting, by the way, uh, I don't know how much time, I don't know if you care about history, if that was one of your favorite subjects in school or one of your least favorite. That's, history is one of my favorite subjects uh, to look at. My wife and I, we compete online all throughout the week. We play a game on our phones where we're competing with each other with history, uh, or with uh, trivia, I mean. And I always do well in the history categories, and she always does really well in the, in the literature categories. And so we never know who's going to win. It just kind of depends on whether there's more history questions or more trivia questions related to uh, literature. She always seems to get the literature ones. Uh, but we have a lot of fun with it. But I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoy looking through human history. And in fact, I wasn't uh, intending to be a pastor when I was initially when I initially enrolled in college. My intention, my hope, my desire was that someday I'd get to be a history teacher. That's what I, I wanted to be. And during that time, the Lord changed my heart about that and uh, and made it clear to me that He was calling me to serve in pastoral ministry. But I've never lost my love for history. And one of the things that fascinates me. And I think it should fascinate all of us, and I don't think it's a nerdy niche thing to notice about history, but do you ever wonder, why is there so much fighting over Jerusalem? Throughout all the centuries, why does anybody care? Like, why does anybody care about Jerusalem? Who cares? Like, when you look at it, you'd be like, you know, on a map, like, um, uh, size-wise, territory-wise, why does anybody care about Jerusalem? And yet in every generation, there are people fighting for control of it. And it gets plucked up and overthrown, and somebody else leads it, and then somebody else leads it, and somebody else leads it. And even right now, what's one of the big debates that's happening politically, even in just the past few months? The fact that United, the United States just recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which it's already been. It's not like we had declared it the capital of, of Israel. Like It's not like one day we're like, hey, you know, I think uh, Jerusalem... That'd make a nice capital for Israel, wouldn't it? It's like, well, hasn't it always been? And uh, it's like, all right, so we recognize that. And now other nations are mad at us for recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Okay, why does anybody care? Like, why does that matter to anybody? Who cares? Well, the reason we care is because there's actually a spiritual thing behind all of it. And people are involved in that discussion and in the, in, involved in that debate And I don't even imagine that everybody that has an opinion about it even knows why they care. But I think deep down, there's some part of us that kind of takes a side on that issue. And we kind of wrestle through that. And there's a spiritual war that's been taking place, and some of it involves Jerusalem. Well, why do we care so much about Jerusalem? Well, what does this Scripture reveal to us? This scripture reveals to us that the Lord has plans for that city. He's got big plans for that city. Huge plans, right? When we look at the scripture in conjunction with the rest of God's word, we're told that a day is coming when Jesus Christ is going to return from heaven and he's going to reign over the earth from where? Jerusalem. He's going to reign over this earth from Jerusalem. You have Jeremiah talking about this when you look at this portion of Scripture. 
We're also told when you look at the conjunction of, uh, or the connection to the other scriptures that reference this, that there's going to come a time when Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, that the nations of this earth are going to make a point to travel to Jerusalem, to be taught by Christ, and to learn from him, learning to walk in his paths. Let me show you a couple portions of scripture that speak of it. One is from Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 3, and it says, And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. From Jerusalem. And in Revelation chapter 20, it says this, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And again, where does that reign take place? Well, the scripture reveals to us he's literally going to reign on this earth, and it's going to be from the city of Jerusalem. And when you look at what Jeremiah says here in Jeremiah chapter 31, the point that's being made here is that the reign of Christ is coming. And no matter what anyone tries to do, that reign will not be overthrown. And likewise, when you think about this from its spiritual implications in your life and my life right now, we have the privilege right now to welcome the reign of Christ in our minds and in our hearts. The reign of Christ. It's amazing to think that He would even invite us to be near Him. You know, that He would even invite us to be part of His kingdom. I always say, you know, we've, um, you know, our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., we've toured it. And uh, when, we were, when we were touring D.C., I remember at one point we uh, were taking a look at the White House. This is maybe four-ish years ago, something like that. I thought, you know, I've always wanted to go in there. I've always wanted to see what it's like in there, but it's obviously not as easy uh, now in this day and age with like political climate and terrorism and stuff like that to just, you can't just walk in. Back in the day, people used to just picnic on the White House lawn. You know, a hundred years ago, if you wanted to have a picnic, you just picnic on the White House lawn. It's like, oh, check it out. There's the president. Hi, President Coolidge. Sandwich? No? All right. Don't have good refrigeration yet, but um, don't want to poison you. Um, but I looked at it and I thought, boy, that'd be cool someday to actually get a chance to walk through that or actually go in there. I actually read some. Do you ever hear of Emily Post? Do you know who Emily Post is? Some people may know who that is. Some people may not. Basically, Emily Post was like the etiquette expert of her generation, right? And people would ask her questions and they'd publish these etiquette, or etiquette, etiquette, etiquette questions in, um, in the newspaper, you know, as they'd ask her questions, they'd write in, and then she'd have opinions about it. And she, someone actually wrote to her at one point, and they said to her, um, Ms. Post, what's the correct procedure when one is invited to the White House but has a previous engagement? <laughs> Does this happen a lot? Like, do people, like, you know, in, in that generation where people are like, oh, like, I never know what to do when I get an invitation to the White House. Like, how does that happen, you know? It's kind of a unique question. It's like, what do you do when you're invited to the White House but you have a previous engagement? And her comment was, she said, listen, an invitation to dine at the White House is a command. It automatically cancels any other engagement. You're not being rude if you, if you accept the invitation to dine at the White House. 
But I, I bring that up as we finish up here because I think it's a valuable question for us to ask when we think about Christ who rules and reigns and will rule and reign for all eternity. Have I responded to Christ's invitation? You know, what have I, he, I mean, he extends this invitation to us. What have I done with that invitation? Meaning, have I welcomed him to rule and reign on the throne of my heart and mind? Have I responded to that invitation? There's an answer to that question for all of us, right? It's either a yes or no kind of answer. For some of us, maybe we're still the one trying to rule or reign on the throne of our heart. That's a constant battle that I've gone through my whole life. Who's trying to reign on my heart right now? Is it me or am I submitting my heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Maybe some of us have heroes or gurus that, that from time to time we effectively invite to reign on the throne of our heart. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the author and perfecter of our faith, the mediator of the new covenant, our eternal King, is the only one who should be given that place of prominence in our lives. And when you look at this portion of Scripture, what the Lord was revealing through Jeremiah is that through Christ, the way to have our sin forgiven and our fellowship with God restored is provided as this new covenant is inaugurated. So the question for us to be asking is, all right, has my sin been forgiven? Has my fellowship with God been permanently restored? And if you've come to a place of genuine faith in Jesus Christ, the answer is yes. You're under the protection, you're under the sealed promises of the new covenant, and you're assured of a place in Christ's kingdom forever. That's a joyful thing to think about. And in the midst of all the heavy things that Jeremiah was communicating to the people of Judah, you have this chapter. You have chapter 31 speaking about this new covenant that ultimately Christ tells us that he himself inaugurated with his blood. And here you and I are today with the opportunity, with the invitation extended for us to respond to the invitation to, re to reply to Christ, to, to trust in Him and be under the sealed protection of this new covenant, to have our sin forgiven and our fellowship with our Creator permanently restored. It's an encouraging portion of Scripture, and I hope that when you're thinking through the book of Jeremiah that there's multiple things that come back to your mind about it, but I hope that one of the things that you remember about this book after our study finishes up in just a few weeks is Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. I want to finish again by rereading that verse. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. A new covenant Christ inaugurated with His blood. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word, and thank You for the privilege that You have given us to be able to look at it together today and meditate on its content and to think about just the implications of what this new covenant is that You're speaking about in this portion of Scripture. Lord, we're grateful that we live as men and women who are under the new covenant. We're grateful that we have the privilege, even when um, we take a look at what Christ said at the Lord's Supper, have the privilege to recognize that the new covenant was inaugurated. It was sealed with the blood of Christ. And he was making that clear to his disciples, and he's making that clear to us. And so 
we're grateful for that today. So, Lord, we pray that our trust in you would be strong, that it would be genuine, and that we would walk with you faithfully each and every day. We thank you, Lord, for writing your law on our hearts. We're thankful, Lord, that, that the presence of your Holy Spirit is within us, that he indwells us and counsels us and points us to the truth and clarifies the truth of your gospel and clarifies the, the counsel of, of the scriptures to us so that we would understand these things and ultimately by your grace grow in our walk with you. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for the privilege to be able to gather together here today and to look at this portion of Scripture together. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>